Hey everyone, it's Britt, the Petite Polymath, coming at you today with a collection of essays by Zadie Smith called Intimations. Hello, so um, I have been reading some nonfiction uh, recently. I think after I finished Such a Fun Age, I was finishing How Not to Die, which is a book about health and diet, and then um, started Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which I'm just up to book, to book three, so stay tuned on that. Um, but the reason why I even started that book was because of Zadie Smith's Intimations. I don't actually remember if someone recommended this to me. I happen to really love Zadie Smith. Um, I'm a bit of an Anglophile for people who know me well, uh, and she is a British um, author. Uh, my friend Karen, who I uh, was an intern with um, in training, was a big Zadie Smith fan, and so um, I started reading more books um, because of Karen's influence, and then I kept reading more Zadie. And then as life would have it, because, you know, I always seem to have these interesting connections, um, the social worker where I was a fellow was married to Zadie's publicist. And somehow I never managed to make that coalesce with me meeting Zadie, which I'm sad. But if you ever hear this, Zadie, I would love to meet you because in my head you're a friend. Um, so Zadie Smith, she is a tenured professor of creative writing at NYU. But of course, in the wake of COVID, um, ran away and is living um, in the United Kingdom, which is home for her. She's married and has, I think, two children. And um, this collection of essays is pretty much her musings about COVID. And I think it might be maybe max seven or maybe seven short essays. Um, and then she was influenced by reading Meditations. And that is why I then started reading it. And at the end of her book, she does kind of what Marcus Aurelius does um, at the end, which is kind of a series of debts and lessons to people that either she knows um, or people that she's looked up to who have shaped her life in some way, which I plan for my own self as a practice to, to do um, at some point this week. So these essays are really just... I mean, of course, they're incredibly timely, given that we're all living in this present. But also, it's just very much, um, there, are, there are pieces of work that feel like zeitgeist, and, and this feels like one. I feel like it captures a lot of some things I've been thinking about. It's been an interesting summer. Um, you know, when you have a a pandemic going on that has impacted, you know, by by virtue of its name, the entire globe, um, and not just in a health way, but also, you know, affecting, because we are humans, every other aspect of our lives. So our relationships, our economics and finances, you know, people losing jobs and careers and large swaths of, um, you know, of, um, of livelihoods being wiped out, um, people not being able to travel, borders being closed, um, not to mention, of course, 
the the very like expected carnage of death and and loss um you know working rapidly to find a vaccine battling what's real and what's fake about how it's spread and mask or not mask social distancing um shaming about how to live your life you know washing your hands do you hug this person do you go see your grandparents like all of these things that are going on um at the same time there's still the normal ebb and flow of life. You know, I lost my grandma at the start of July. I have friends who've gotten married and have had these, you know, very bizarre um, yet beautiful Zoom weddings or, you know, weddings with like three people as opposed to the 100 they would have had. Um, I have friends who have found out they're pregnant and they've spent their whole pregnancies, you know, in isolation, which was not the plan. I have friends who've had babies during this time. I've you know, given bad news and diagnoses to patients. Um, you know, people have gotten engaged and married. People have gotten divorced. Uh, people have fallen in love. All these things continue to happen. Uh, people have lost their jobs. People have gotten new jobs. And so the way that the world continues to rotate on its axis when it feels at the same time that the world has stopped, um, it's a very weird place to be in history. And I know that there will be lots of things written uh, in the future about this time. I think that some themes that Zadie gets at um, that struck me, she talks about kind of what is maybe the view of what has value in life. You know, uh, does art matter? Does writing matter? Um, what does it mean to have legacy? She also talks about, you know, the myth of American um, exceptionalism and kind of watching it fall apart in real time uh, and how this might, you know, totally change the course of the world as we know it. Um, what it means to be really lonely concepts of community, you know, living in a place like New York City that was just devastated by this virus, a place where people usually seem kind of, you know, rough around the edges, but when you get down underneath, they are people that live in community, in these small neighborhoods. You go to the same place for your pancakes on Saturday, and you might leave an extra key, you know, at the bar, so that if people come to visit, the bartender gives your friend the keys, so they can go up to the walk-up and, and, you know, stay at your house if you're gone. Um, you know, on your same walk every day, on the same train that you're on every day to work, you see the same people riding the same train. So there's this sense of familiarity, even in this place that's so big. And then seeing this place that is, is built on um, interactions with strangers and hustle and bustle and crowds looking apocalyptic. She has this really cool essay about um, what it must be to be mentally ill, and you know, these ideas of paranoia um, and isolation and worst-case scenarios. What is it like when that's your internal dialogue and then the world actually meets you there because it's in disarray? Does it feel normal then to you? Is it reaffirming of whatever is like not right in your own mind or not? Which is, you know, a perspective I've never thought about before. 
for someone who's always maybe seen the world as a very dangerous place, whether that was founded on reality or not, to now see the worst things that you've come up with, that you've watched on TV or that you've conjured up in your mind, um, to see that actually be reality. How does that feel? I know for myself, I'm you know relatively optimistic person. And uh, there was a, a week I was driving to work and I just felt like a caged animal. And let's just be honest, I mean, I'm not a caged animal, of course. But I thought, like, there's nowhere to go. I mean, no one would let me in and I can't travel. And if I did travel, I'd have to shelter in place somewhere for two weeks or I might get there and wouldn't even be allowed to go in. And I, there's no place to run. Like, what a, what a view that there's no place to run. You know, feeling like you're just a hamster, you know, on a wheel in a cage. Which, you know, there are people who felt this way throughout history in their normal lives, with the world doing what the world was doing. But now to feel this in this very large way is just, it kind of takes your breath away. Um, the very last essay that she writes about is just... For no other reason, I encourage someone to read it. And it's called Contempt as a Virus. And she uses it kind of as the example of what happened with George Floyd and, and racism. And the language is so spot on of this idea of this insidious thing that takes root in you and then ultimately um, bears out destruction. And, you know, she, she has some really fun ways of viewing, you know, kind of the way we use our language, for example, murder, and why does, it, why does something have to be a hate crime versus just a crime of passion? Um, as if, if you take the step of hating someone for something that's really banal, then it's worse than just like being passionate in a flurry and, and killing someone, you know, like a scorned lover or something like that. And that, you know, to pick something like that person was a woman or that person was this ethnicity or from this, from this country, the, the, the fact that that reason is so idiotic makes then the violence even more heinous. And so she, she gives us an example of Dylan Roof with Charleston and, you know, various other people in the past. And, and she just weaves this picture of how humans have found ways to, um, to be consumed by othering someone in such a way that then you justify the horrible things you do to them. And I... I mean, I, I read the essay twice because I was just like, oh gosh, I feel like I've missed something and I need to read this again. And uh, I just, I almost want to read it out loud here. I think I'll read at least just the paragraph. You start to think of contempt as a virus infecting individuals first, but spreading rapidly through families, communities, peoples, power structures, nations. Less flashy than hate, more deadly. When contempt kills you, it doesn't have to be a vendetta or even entirely conscious. It can be a passing whim. It's far more common, and therefore more lethal. The virus doesn't care about you. 
and likewise with contempt. In the eyes of contempt, you don't even truly rise to the level of a hated object. That would involve a full recognition of your existence. Before contempt, you are simply not considered as others are. You are something less than a whole person, not quite a complete citizen. Say, three-fifths of the whole. You are statistical. You are worked around. You are a calculated loss. You have no recourse. You do not represent capital, and therefore you do not represent power. You are of no consequence. No well-dressed fancy lawyer will come running to the scene to defend you, carrying a slim attache ca case crying, that's my client. You are easily jailed and easily forgotten. The stakes are low, and so contempt. And, you know, she, she then goes on says this can be used in multiple ways, right? It can be racial, the contempt of, in racism, it can be the contempt in sexism, it can be the contempt in class. Um, the poor don't matter, those people on the border in those uh, detention centers don't matter, those children in orphanages in the developing world don't matter, these people in refugee camps don't matter, those people in government housing don't matter. Those people in those re-education camps in China don't matter. There's not even enough effort to conjure up true hate. It's just utter disdain and disregard for another person who is made in the exact same image as you are. And so it just is very um, moving and provocative. And if there's one thing I think that Zadie does well is she tells you that as much as she uses her words, she encourages you to use your own. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about in my own life, is, is how to um, use my language, my words, my reach, in ways that are productive and um, creative in the best of ways, right? and how to not let uh, this time break us in ways that make us irreparable, but rather um, allow us to think in novel ways of how to build something better than what we had before. This was another episode of the Petite Polymath. I hope you enjoyed. Who knows what I'll be talking about next time. You all have a great week.